One of the main themes or motifs that you'll find in the classic Zen stories is that there'll be a question, you know, Master, how do we get enlightened? And the response will be, pay attention. But Master, how do I get my mind to quiet down? Pay attention. But what do I do if pay attention? And that every response will be, pay attention, pay attention. And then somehow, by grace, the questioner will all of a sudden go, oh, and pay attention, and then they'll get enlightened. And it happens kind of in that sequence. Learning to pay attention is probably the common denominator of every spiritual discipline we could ever discuss. Here we call it a moment-to-moment wakefulness. And what we know is it takes practice. And I'd like to talk tonight about spiritual practice because I find that it's one of the subjects that's kind of like the elephant in the room that nobody quite wants to talk about because when we really look at ourselves, most of us are not so free from self-judgment that we don't go, hmm, I don't really practice very much or very well or in some way I'm falling short on the spiritual practice end of things. So it feels like an important place to talk about given that so much of our intention is to wake up out of that whole swirl of self-judgment. And yet, we also intuit quite deeply that we need to practice. So it's a bit of a bind. Given our culture, we need to make an effort. And given our culture, the way we make an effort usually increases our contraction and self-judgment. So let's look at this a little bit tonight, if we can. And I'd like to... if. I'm going to make the effort (laughs) to not speak too much because I'd like to have some time if you have questions about your practice at home, either the form of it or some of the content of the actual meditation instructions and how it's going. I'd like to have some time for that tonight. So we'll see. The reason as everyone can intuit, that we need to practice is because our habit of body and mind is not to be here. That we are organized around leaning into the future and reflecting on the past. And I've many times here used a metaphor of the spacesuit, that we've got this agenda of what we want and what we fear. And for most of the moments of our day, unless we're awake, we're identifying with this spacesuit self that's trying to accomplish X, Y, and Z and avoid the bad things from happening. And as long as we're in that mode, we're making an effort that's a fear-based effort, and we're preoccupied, and we're forgetting what really matters. So meditation practice is a way of remembering And yet, our habits of tension around practicing anything end up getting slapped onto meditation practice. But we know that there's only so much reading and listening to tapes and going to workshops and so on that we can do. And if we really want to be fresh and real and awake, we need to stop and carve out the time to really listen, to get quiet. And sometimes maybe if we call it meditation practice, it sounds like too much of a doing. So in a way we need being time, just being with our inner life and listening. Quiet, wakeful, being time. A 103-year-old Mexican Indian shaman's name was Don Jose Rios, and this is his description of practice. He said, I pursued my apprenticeship for 84 years. (laughs) Don't let that discourage you. (laughs) During these years, many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I have endured much suffering during my life. Yet to learn to see 
to learn to hear. You must do this. Go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only by yourself, only in solitude. Now, there's many ways to go into the wilderness. There's many ways to come into stillness, and sometimes we do it by formal retreats or going to monasteries, and sometimes by walking in the woods, and sometimes just by sitting still and being with the naturalness and wildness of our inner weather. It's a being with that's intentional. That's the point. So we come here to class and we begin to design into our life these spaces of being where we are stepping out of what's habitual. That's kind of the simple way of describing it. We're stepping out of the habitual wanting, fearing, spacesuit activities, the accomplishing activities, and the only intent is to put aside distraction, to let go of the distractions and arrive here now, into sacred presence. So to talk some more about what the Buddha described as this wise effort, this effort to be present, because that's really, there's no goal that's accomplishing, attaining, being somewhere else. The effort is for the sake of presence. And I find the best way to explore wise effort is to first get clear on what's unskillful effort. So we'll begin with that. Unskillful effort is any effort that's a kind of reactive type of effort where we're operating on those programs I described before, the fearing and the wanting. And I'll read you one of my favorite um, stories about not particularly wise effort. (laughs) This is um, a letter to an insurance company. In response to your request for additional information in block three of the accident report form, I put in poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter I should explain more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer, bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had 500 pounds of brick left. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel attached to the side of the building. This is the beginning of a certain kind of effort. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. (laughs) You will note in block number 11 of the accident report form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. (laughs) Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull. (laughs) Slowing slightly, I continued my ascent, stopping when the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. (laughs) As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. (laughs) This accounts for the fractured ankle. In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. As I mentioned, this encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the bricks. Fortunately, only my toes were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain and unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. (laughs) This is entitled, On Knowing When to Let Go. (laughs) 
most of our unwise, unskillful efforts unconscious. We're continuously motivated. It's part of our life experience to be motivated. We're not always so aware of our motivations, so a lot of our movement through the world, the holding on and the pushing away and the managing and the manipulating is on automatic. Part of cultivating a healthy meditation practice is to become aware of our way of making an effort. How do we approach meditation practice? Is there a sense of tightening? Is there a sense of duty and obligation? Is there a lackadaisical ambivalence? The Buddha described the two kind of polarities of unskillful effort. One is being, as you can imagine, too tight, where we're striving, wanting to be better, never being enough. The the earmark of too tight is judgment, judgment, judgment. There's always a little voice saying, do it this way, do it that way, this isn't quite right. What they really mean for you to experience is this. Mm, am I getting, mm, not quite yet, you know, on and on and on. So we're badgering ourselves, too tight. Then the other side, of course, is too loose. And that's where, for whatever reason, there's a kind of indifference and I'll practice if I get around to it. I'll, I'll put aside some time if, if there's time. But what happens is, when it's too loose, the pursuits of our spacesuit agenda take over. So we get out of bed, and we meant to do a little bit of sitting practice, but we started remembering all the things that we had to do by 9 a.m. and kind of looked at our watch and then stand up. Before we know it, we're already in the day. Are will practice some, but get this underlying sense of it's not going to make a difference anyway. I mean, I don't really have the kind of qualities, what they call the parames, to make spiritual progress. So we do kind of a haphazard job. We don't really put our heart into it. And that's the fear of failure side. We're loose because we don't really think we can make it. For most people I know, when we begin to investigate the kind of effort we put into spiritual practice, we find that both are there, (laughs) that we kind of swing back and forth. We sometimes strive, and then we give up, and then we get preoccupied, and so we go bouncing all over the place. Let's just look at a little closer. The Buddha's metaphor was that it's like playing a lute, this way of approaching spiritual life, that we don't want to be too tight. If the strings are too tight, they're twangy. We don't want it to be too loose. There's no tone at all. So how to find that balance, that middle way? Too tight. What happens? We sit here, and you hear the instructions. Okay, now notice the sensations of the breath in the midst of your experience, and let the awareness rest in the breath. Okay, those sound familiar? And what do we do? We begin to kind of aim in at the breath. And for many people, there's an immediate tightening around the breath and a trying to, like, drive the breath. We kind of are almost pushing the breath in and out, squeezing the breath, compressing the breath. We control our experience. Or when something difficult comes up, we immediately try to talk ourselves out of it or tell ourselves, well, if I just sit very still, it'll go away. We're constantly manipulating that is too tight. John O'Donohue, he says that we powerfully manage our lives so as to forget the mystery we are involved in. Now this is what happens in practice. There's something about being fully present that feels so out of control and so mysterious and scary and exciting. It's this whole sense of aliveness, unmitigated, that we're trained to kind of try to temper it, to control things. It's a rare moment that we really let go and fully arrive in the mystery of just what's happening this moment. So tightness, controlling. Monindraji, which uh, 
Joseph Goldstein, who's one of my teachers, talks a lot about him because Manindra was one of his first teachers, says that our practice is a thousand and thousands of times to keep remembering, be simple and easy. Take things as they come. Be simple and easy. So, if you're plagued by a tight kind of effort towards practice, a micromanaging, controlling, tense one, be simple and easy. It's a really beautiful mantra. There's something about it that gives so much permission to just let it be. Be simple and easy. My background is one of having enormous experience in the striving side of unwise effort. Um, Many of you know I spent uh, 12 years living in an ashram and it was the whole flavor of ashram living was a bit leaning towards this kind of striving effort. Everyone got up quite early and there was a bit of competition about who was getting up early and who wasn't showing up for the morning meditations and who was sitting up ramrod straight for long. And So there, this was an undercurrent. Nobody quite named it that way, but we all knew that there was yogi competition, you know. And of course, I entered with being a competitive spirit and um, brought all my striving in, in life to spiritual life and found myself getting up an hour before other people were getting up so I could do three extra meditations and be really centered when, when everybody would enter the uh, what we call the sadhana room or the practice room. And what would happen, and we were doing a practice which was somewhat just concentration on the breath or on sound without the mindfulness part, And it was very effective in deepening samadhi, which is this one-pointed absorption. So I developed some skill in that. Now, that's nice. It's a useful thing to have the capacity to be one-pointed. But it's also an attachment, because with samadhi comes these very pleasurable, blissful, rapturous states. So I'd work real hard and spend hours each morning getting to a place that was really delicious, And then eventually I'd be going through the day and it would all fade away. And so then, of course, I'd feel like I was blowing it in some way. And then I'd work real hard the next time I sat down to meditate. Do you understand how compartmentalized this is? This isn't the goal of spiritual life, meaningly presence, compassion, wakefulness. This is striving for a particular state of mind which I found out about after I started attending Buddhist meditation sittings, that I was kind of going for something, a specific state of mind, rather than going for being open and present with whatever was arising, listening to life. An athlete described it this way, I used to overtrain because doing a lot made me feel like I was achieving something. It seemed good to grind out the repetitions, but actually it was just lazy. How much harder to notice just what my body needed, how I'm breathing. I do that now. I really listen, and I don't get injured so much. Some of you might remember that quote from Thomas Merton, how... um, the way we approach work is, in a sense, a violent way. That when our effort towards spiritual practice is straining and striving, we do violence. We reinforce a sense of a deficient self that needs to get somewhere. Do you understand? Another little story. An old meditation meditator came to see one of the abbots of the Desert Fathers and said to him, Tell us, Master, when we see our brothers dozing during the sacred service, should we pinch them so they stay awake? And the old man said, Actually, if I saw a brother sleeping, I would put his head on my knees and let him rest. So there's a quality of gentleness a quality of ease that we practice because we care about waking up but not because it's to achieve something to make us different, to make us better. I, I in retrospect, realize how much I 
was striving in practice so that I could feel good about myself, like I was a good spiritual person. And yet, inevitably, we carry those motivations with us. So to be gentle about that and just become aware, what do we bring with our effort? True effort is subtle. It's not a grinding, forcible kind of a thing. But true effort is also not passive. It's not like we say, well, hey, I'm fine just as I am, so why bother, you know? Because that's not just passive, that's indifferent, that's not caring. The truth is that our spiritual practice comes out of a very deep caring that we're sometimes in touch with and we're sometimes not. So it's a good idea to have a regular habit of practice even when you're not profoundly motivated. (laughs) Because otherwise, we get carried away by the projects that are kind of neurotic in our day. Most of you have probably noticed that motives are layered. That we have these condition layers where we want food or recognition or touch or achievement or whatever it is. We want to avoid, this is another motivation, mistakes or loss. I remember once being in a workshop and there was a description of a a native person in a jungle and a spear was coming at him. And what is wise at that moment? Is it wise to go, hmm, worrying, blue sky, feeling of crunching on the feet, smelling? Or is it wise to figure out safety is the motivation and go diving into the brush, you know? There's a good reason to go with our spacesuit motivations. And yet we do it compulsively, reflexively, and pervasively. Eh? It's the way we live a lot of our day. So meditation practice is coming down to a deeper motivation. Under those layers of wanting and fearing... There's a basic will to live, to live. Each one of us has it. This will, and it's not just to live, it's to fully live, to be fully who we are. I remember running into uh, a friend of mine, oh, some seasons ago, and I hadn't seen her for about four or five years. I ran into her at a retreat, and she looked absolutely radiant. I mean, she looked great, and I so I said, what happened? And she said, well... I just feel free to be who I am. And it was simple, and for many people it might sound cliche, but you could sense that somehow or other she was allowing herself to be awake and alive and just live it. We all want that. We feel a despair when we sense that in some way we're going through day after day after day skimming the surface when we're somewhat on automatic with the people we care about and we don't really let ourselves touch and be touched or when we spend all these hours in our official work and yet we don't sense any creativity any fulfillment any real presence there so our habits to get caught on these other layers which are sometimes appropriate, but often just the way we're programmed. It's said in India that when a pickpocket sees a saint, he sees the saint's pocket. The practice that most guides practice is remembering our aspiration, the deepest level. It's the reason that in almost every class here, and for me in almost every time I'm beginning to sit or I'm going to do therapy with somebody or anything where I want to make extra effort to be present, we remember what matters. If just this moment, and I'd like to invite you to do it, you take a few full breaths and say to yourself, okay, what matters as I'm listening tonight? What matters 
for the rest of this time that we're all here together. What's my deepest intention to ask that and sincerely listen? What most matters? What most matters when I get home tonight? How do I want to relate to the beings in my home, animals, plants, to my own inner life? What really matters? As much as we feel distress when we don't feel that we're living true to what most matters, we feel a genuine joy when we become aligned. Remembering what matters, and it's kind of our prayer in the deepest way, it energizes our efforts. When we remember that what matters is we want to wake up, we want our hearts to be open, then our efforts are aligned with that. They're motivated by that. Remembering helps to shield us from distractions. When we sit and at the beginning of a sitting say, in some way connect, well, may this sitting be filled with as many moments of wakefulness, of open-heartedness. Just the fact that we connect with wanting that is almost like a gravitational energy. It pulls us towards that. It means that when something comes up and we get lost in a distraction, more quickly do we go, oh yeah, that's just fine. That's just conditioning, thinking, thinking. But it's not like our whole being is identified with it because we have a deeper sense of who we are, which is an awakening being. It's a shift of identity. Another story for you. This is from Zorba the Greek. Maybe you're right, boss. It all depends on the way you look at it. Look, one day I had gone to a little village. An old grandfather of 90 was busy planting an almond tree. What granddad, I exclaimed, planting an almond tree? As you know, they're very slow growers. And he, bent as he was, turned around and said, my son, I carry on as if I should never die. And I replied, and I carry on as if I was going to die any minute. Which one of us was right, boss? <laughs> Let's take a vote. <laughs> Let's take each one, actually. As if I should never die. So let that be a reflection for a moment. What's the meaning of that? As if I should never die. The sense of unlimited possibility. That all moments are endlessly creative, bountiful. This has been described as the vision that inspires, this sense of timeless possibility. That our Buddha nature is already existing, is timeless, is beyond space. When we imagine it, sense that, as if I should never die, we can relax and open. Why hold back? It's all right here. Infinite possibility. When we reflect, as if I was going to die any minute, clearly there can be a a shadow side to each of these reflections too. But as if I was going to die in any minute, realizing that this life is endlessly changing, seasons, tides, all that arises and takes form will dissolve, disappear, including these bodies. What happens? The sounds of birds, the sounds of a dear one's voice, autumn leaves, brisk air, the chanting of Om, it all comes and goes. And it all, in its fleetingness, 
can be realized as exquisitely precious. If we're going to die any moment, we can really give ourselves to this one because this is precious. It's sacred. It's here. Carlos Castaneda puts it this way. He says, when death makes even the slightest gesture, all our pettiness falls away. The awareness of death transforms one's ordinary time on earth into magical power. We know this. Most everyone I know now has either lost somebody that's close to them or been with people that have lost people close to them. We know what it's like in the face of that losing, that inevitable change, impermanence, we discover this real, incredible love for life. One friend from the Sangha called me a couple days ago and her mother's dying and she and her sister had been estranged for the last several years. And in the face of their mother's death, as you might imagine, it all dropped away. I'm not saying it won't resurrect itself, but we get a glimmer and sometimes that glimmer can carry us so that we align our lives with what matters. As if I was going to die any minute. I know for myself when I watch different people facing loss and I watch it inside myself, it's easy to swing it's easy to face loss, and I've seen people with, that are dying with this sense of feeling victimized, why me, struggling, bitter. It's this giant no, no, no to every step of the process of deterioration. And I've seen people dying, and in the dying, let go of a lot of the spacesuit activities and just become that radiance that presence that's very unconditional in love. And when I watch that, it lets me know why I practice. We're practicing to learn to die. And I don't mean it in a morbid way, like learn to die, like get ready for this body to go, but we're practicing to learn this letting go that happens every single day Because the other side of letting go, in any moment that we let go of what we're gripping, let go of this need to prove, let go of what we're holding on in terms of expectations, we're free to live this moment fully. It's freedom. We need both, both sides of this Zorba the Greek story. We need the sense of the vision of all the possibility, this incredible creativity that everything we say or do or think or feel can become more and more and more in any different direction, that any encounter can connect us with love, that everything is possible, the vision of what's possible. And we need the sense of immediacy. And I don't mean a frightened immediacy, but an immediacy that realizes that this moment is it. Until we relate to this moment with a deep cherishing, our habit's going to be that we're living for something later, down the road, around the corner. And we will get to the end of our lives. And we will have been running and leaning forward and not really have arrived. Black Elk Sioux leader and medicine man wrote this and just meditate on it for a moment then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all and around and beneath me was the whole circle of the world I stood there I saw more than I could tell and understood more than I saw for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that together makes one circle, wide as daylight and starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. 
and I saw that it was holy. But you must realize that everywhere is the center of the world and anywhere is holy ground. We can relax because that holy ground is the essence of who we are. Our practice isn't to become someone different. Rather, we practice to relax into our already present Buddha nature, awakened nature. And the time and place for that is now. There's just no need to wait. You can go very deep into spiritual life if you choose. And it takes remembering what matters and letting now, this moment, count. Just this one. Trusting that this very body, these very emotions are exactly perfect. The perfect place to pay attention and awaken. So let's just take a few moments together to practice some more and then we'll um, do some sharing. If you've been sitting quite still and you'd like to stretch before you sit again, please do. As we've been reflecting on, let your settling in begin with a sense of aspiration. What the Tibetans describe the aspiration for bodhicitta, the awakening heart-mind. Just touch what matters just for these few moments. Acknowledging your aspiration as a prayer, just words, or just a sense, whatever feels right to you. And then establishing those qualities of being quite relaxed, yet very wakeful, so that you sit, recognize distractions when they arise, and then relax back, wakeful and present, again and again, re-relaxing, reawakening, arriving in this moment. There is nothing outside of mind sensing the vastness, the boundlessness, 
all its experience, the sounds, the sensations, belongs to mind, awareness. And sensing this boundlessness in this moment, wakeful and immediate, just this and this. This is Rumi. We are the night ocean filled with glints of light. We are the space between the fish and the moon while we sit here together. May the merit from our practice and our efforts be of benefit to all beings. May all beings awaken. May all beings be free. Please inhale. For any questions about your practice at home, about the meditation instructions, about what you noticed as you sat tonight, or any sharing, the floor is open. Anyone? The question is, how do you take a situation that brings up a lot of emotional reaction and turn it into an opportunity to practice? Which is um, a wonderful, wonderful question because that's mostly what's going on for us. <laughs> I mean, most of us, if we don't have one worthy opponent, we have, you know, 40. Do you know, you know the expression, worthy opponents? It's from the Carlos Castaneda books, which is... We all have beings in our life that 
push our buttons, that bring up reactivity. And so truly, meditation practice is not uh, just a practice on the cushion. It's almost like when we're sitting quietly, we're training our mind to get quieter, to be able to return to the present moment, to deal with what comes up spontaneously inside, so that we can move through our day and continue to relate to what happens with some quality of presence, of awareness, and of kindness. And what that means is it's very hard to be in the midst of action and somehow or other have that remembering. And generally we're completely imperfect at it and we make a lot of mistakes. But the more we sit on the cushion and intend to bring those awarenesses into our activities, the more it actually happens. And it's slow, but for people that have been practicing for a long time, there's distinct transformation where there's just more and more presence and less reactivity. So it's possible. Okay. But it is the domain of practice. And what you're describing is what we're all working with. Yeah, thank you. You know how Woody Allen put it, he said, if my film makes at least one person feel miserable, I feel like I've done my job. (laughs) It's, the truth is that inevitably we use meditation in service of more pleasure and less pain. The reason I told my own story is because I did it for so long and Still, there's no question. I like pleasure, I don't like pain, and unconsciously every day there's ways in which I'm using spiritual and personal efforts to maximize pleasure and decrease pain. So really it's just including it in awareness. In fact, you can't do meditation wrong. All you can do is include more and more in awareness. It may be that the most skillful thing you can do with a chaotic family scene is to bring kind of a very concentrated, relaxed, you know, state of mind up to create a buffer. And it might be that that's pleasant and that for a while that's probably, it's kind of a stage. It's not the end of the road, but it's a stage that helps to diffuse things. All that mindfulness means is that you don't stop there. You keep paying attention and notice, okay, there's a bit of withdrawal with this. And we do that. Meditation can be used as a drug like anything else. Sometimes it's an effective mid-station. But then, because we're in this for the long haul, do you know what I mean, for real freedom, we then notice that and go, okay, so I'm a bit numbing or setting up a buffer zone so I don't have to feel the intensity of that chaos. How can I maintain a sense of presence but open the door a little more? be a little more awake to what's going on with those folks or with underneath what's the woundedness in me. So we just keep on having the courage to ask the question and open the doors. But to say that um, Thich Nhat Hanh described it this way, it's not enough to suffer. We have to touch peace too. So for you to use meditation in service of touching some peace, 
and, and finding enough stability and resilience so that you can gradually open include more and more of what's difficult, I think could be quite wise and skillful. So I hope that's helpful. Do you have another question or did that... Okay, thank you for your question. I can't hear you. Thank you. Yeah. In Vipassana, this is a question about the role of absorption and samadhi and the relationship with mindfulness, and it's a wonderful question, and there's whole talks and dialogues about just that. In Vipassana, we always try to um, develop a certain amount, at least, of concentration, because if there's not a certain capacity to be connected with coming back to this moment, a certain muscle to realize distraction and return, then there's no way to be mindful. There's no way to know what's happening if you're all over the place. There can be an addiction to so much concentration, so much absorption in, let's say, the breath, that there's no quality of recognition of what's happening. So there's a wise balancing, and you can go very, very deep in concentration as long as there's still that wakefulness, that recognition of the mind. Ultimately, we are free when there's a complete absorption and complete wakefulness. So each of us has a kind of different way that we kind of balance. It's an art form of meditation. Some people need to really emphasize concentration and developing samadhi. Others are fairly concentrative, but gets trance-like, are blissful without having a wakefulness, in which case those people need to more ask that question, well, what's true now? What's really happening? Do you understand? So there's this balancing as you drop in deeper and deeper to a full quality of presence. It's a wonderful question. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that, that story le- leaves a lot unsaid because certainly some people say, well, I'm just being myself, so I'm going to shoot up a n- bunch of people, or I'm just being myself, so I'm going to go rape everybody that attracts me, you know. So, who, you know, what does it mean to really be yourself? And it's kind of an intuitive sense, and I'd say each one of us here knows it, that there are times we feel more deeply that our being is connected with an essence sense, and other times that we're more in in a habitual mode that can be quite familiar, but isn't particularly free or deep. So for her, it was more of a sense of trusting her depth and being able to live more spontaneously from that deep place. Um, But these are very kind of general words, and and it's really the only way to experience it is by practicing and feeling more of a touching into that that depth. So it's a real fair question. Okay, thank you. Anything else? Yeah. So this is really how do you bring a quality of of care and compassion to help be healing for another. I know for myself that when someone's in trouble, if I can really pay attention, and it could be long distance or right up there, to two things, to both the truth of their suffering 
and not from a kind of pitying way, but really, like with the tonglen, really breathing in and sensing it's not their suffering, it's, it's the suffering, and I know it too. So if I can genuinely sense a resonance with their suffering, their pain, because anybody that's acting and behaving in hurtful ways is coming from suffering, that's one piece, is to connect with their suffering and also look through the eyes that can see their basic goodness, even though they might be really wrapped. You know, and if you can see a person suffering genuinely and see their goodness, there's a natural compassion that can take the shape of a prayer or a generous gesture or whatever, but it, it's, a, it's a, an energy that then has kind of a holding space for that person. So see what's true, really see what's true, kind of putting aside reactivity if you can, and then use your prayer. You know, to, you can use your prayer visually to sense that you're holding them in kind of an open energetic space of heart or you can send words to them of metta, however it feels right for you. Well, I, lo- I love hearing it. I mean, some of you might not have read this book. The Dal- this is the, the main kind of theme or teaching of the Dalai Lama, which is we all want to be happy, no one wants to suffer, and we're all connected. So if we live from a sense of connectedness, where we really feel another being's pain, feel their goodness, or being serviceful, we're going to be living out of our nature, and we're going to feel happy. And yet, because we're wired to say, me first. It's almost like just developing this practice of considering another person's feelings is breaking out of a habit pattern. It begins to do what you described. You all of a sudden get this whole view of how pervasive the me first is. So it's a beautiful practice. The the Buddha taught generosity as the first of the spiritual faculties. Just that, that considering others and giving to others. Um, now there are some people that are so addicted to try to say you first, you first that in a way they're violating the inner life they're, it's like saying I'm not worthy so it can be flipped and, and none of these are like iron laws these are just a skillful way to consider things so that we gradually let go of the aversions let go of the grasping and come to rest in the truth of our connectedness for you, the angle that you're coming in sounds beautiful because it's waking you up. Thank you. Well, um, I'd like to encourage you because I've kind of intentionally talked about practice tonight to be mindful of how you're relating to formal meditation practice this week. I really consider it all practice. I mean, every moment we're intending to be here. But to see if you can have the intent to put aside a little space each day where the intent is to not be distracted, but rather to be with, wakefully with, the life that's happening, relaxed and present. And then notice what the habit patterns are that circle around it, the sense of, I don't want to, I want to do it right, you know, whatever it is. And even if you just sit for a few minutes, 
Let it be an experiment to learn more about the way that you make an effort so that in that mindfulness you can become more deep and committed to your spiritual life in a way that you enjoy. Okay? So watch it and see what happens. And um, we'll see if we can kind of continue this a bit next week, exploring our practice together. Um, any other questions on tonight? Anybody had? Yeah. So this is the power of having someone else or a group also, or just one person? Different persons. Um, thank you. Thank you. This is, if, if you haven't read A Path with Heart, there's a, an, is that where you got it from, A Path with Heart? Yeah, Jack Cornfield's book. There's a number of different meditations that are guided that might, you might find useful when you're experimenting during the week with your sitting practice. So thank you for reminding us of that. A couple of announcements. In two weeks, um, we'll be having another one of our um, second Wednesday of the month gatherings where we'll end with a uh, potluck sharing. And again, to remind you, if you have tapes or books you'd like to um, donate and that we'll have an exchange that night. So that's in two weeks. Um, also like to ask Rob Arner to stand up. <laughs> Rob Arner. Okay, can you say something about this? It's located at the Carter Rock Springs Community Center. It's outside the Beltway, just about four minutes. It's very easy to get to. And um, if you love dancing, come. And if you don't love dancing, come. (laughs) And just note unpleasant, unpleasant. (laughs) No, actually, it will be fun anyway. But um, yeah, we really, really want to. Um, we kind of left this till last minute, so if you could help us by getting the word out, um, it's just a really lovely way to gather and be with each other. Uh, door prizes, too, all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Strange stuff we haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> um, my friend Claude, who's here, Claude, if you'll raise your hand, is offering a retreat on the four Brahma Viharas. That's uh, loving kindness practice, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Saturday, November 27th, from 10 to 5. So um, those of you that are interested, that'll be, that's a flyer that's out also on the table. Yeah. Okay. Okay, other announcements? Wow.
that's it. Oh, West Nisker is coming in next year for a week. Yeah, so those of you, and I really apologize because there was so much last minute juggling, but here I am and Wes isn't here, <laughs> and I'm telling you late. <laughs> but yeah, he'll be here for a week next year, and he's wonderful, and you'll enjoy him when he comes. Thank you. <laughs> We're all dyslexic a little. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, many wonderful moments. Blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.